We've come as far as verse 24, and we just happen to be in this area of uh, prophecy while some of these things are happening in the world. And um, as far as we know at this point, the Russia-Ukraine war uh, is not, you know, significant in Bible prophecy. It's not spoken of anywhere in the scriptures, but there certainly has the potential to develop into Ezekiel 38:39, uh, because as the Lord says there to Gog and Magog, He puts a hook into their jaw and pulls them down upon the mountains of Israel. So there's an indication there that that's not their intent to begin with, and because of circumstances, things that happen, they change their plan, change their mind, and they come down against Israel. So. Just have to keep our eyes on those things. Um, certainly, we're in the days. We're in the days of last days prophecy and last days events. So we've come as far as verse 24 in uh, Mark 13, where Jesus says, "But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light." The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels (coughs) and gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. So Jesus continues speaking in the time frame of the second coming. Uh, Jesus comes in the second coming to the earth. This is not the rapture. The rapture only comes in the air. He comes to the earth. He quotes after that tribulation. So it's at the end of the seven-year tribulation period that Jesus' second coming takes place. Jesus returns in the clouds with great power and glory. The timing of this passage revolves around verse 14 where the abomination of desolation takes place. This anchors the time to the halfway point of the tribulation period, and the countdown can begin three and a half years to the second coming. So at the end of the tribulation period, we find the events surrounding the second coming of Jesus to the earth. He comes in like manner that the apostles saw him go into heaven at the ascension as we Read in Acts 1, uh, these guys are standing there looking up where Jesus has gone and disappeared into the cloud. And they're look, while they're looking up there steadfastly toward heaven, these two angels appear next to them. And in verse 11 said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So he's coming back at the end of that tribulation period. And we read here about celestial events that are going to occur. The stars of heaven will fall. The powers in the heavens will be shaken. One point in apocalyptic literature, it says the stars of heaven will fall to the earth. Here it just says the stars of heaven will fall. So they may not fall entirely to the earth at this point. And the powers in the heavens Uh, will be shaken. So these celestial events occurring, the sun will be darkened, he says, the moon 
will not give its light to the darkness. There's a point at the fourth trumpet in Revelation where there's something similar to this. Uh, Revelation 8, verses 12 and 13. The fourth angel has just blown his trumpet. You know, you have the uh, seven seals, and within the seventh seal you have the seven trumpets, and within the seventh trumpet you have the seven bowl judgments that are poured out. So, you know, we're about in the midst of that whole scenario or sequence. And it says in verse 12, Then the fourth angel sounded, a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. So at this point, the light on the earth is reduced to uh, two-thirds. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels, who are about to sound. So the last three trumpet blasts are woes unto those who dwell on the earth. In Joel chapter 3 and verse 11, 11 through 16, we see similar language here. He says in verse 11, Assemble and come all you nations and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. In this valley of Jehoshaphat, we're talking that last battle that takes place, uh, Armageddon. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. We see the same phenomenon. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So in verse 24 of this chapter 13, just before the second coming, it appears that the earth will be in total or near total darkness physically. The sun is not shining. The moon is not shining. The stars are not giving forth their light. It's dark. It's certainly dark physically. It, it will be dark spiritually with the nations of the world gathered to fight against the Lord and against His anointed Jesus. We read about those multitudes in the Valley of Decision. They're all gathered together, and they're gathered together to fight against the Lord and His anointed. Now they're coming into the land of Israel. They're coming to take Israel. But there will be a bigger fight that will take place. In Revelation chapter 19, we see this. This is as Jesus has come back, or he's coming back in the clouds. And we'll read that part, portion of it as well. But he says in verse 19 of Revelation 19, I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Jesus is coming back on that horse. And then the beast was captured with him, the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. So Jesus just speaks... The word, the sword from his mouth, and it slays all these 
who have gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So they see him coming, and they think, we're going to take this guy out. In Revelation 16, we see also a reference to this battle. Uh, in verse 13 of Revelation 16, John says, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So these three last days uh, deceivers. He says, For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and to the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. And then Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gather them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. So again, coming to this last battle, and this is what's going to be taking place here is Jesus comes with great power and glory. Over in Psalms chapter 2, this psalm uh, could have some general application, but I think it is also has some specific references to this time where he says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, against, uh, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. They don't want to be ruled by God or by the Lord Jesus. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. And this is what he says. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. This is where Jesus is going to be ruling from after the second coming. I will declare the decree. This is the king speaking. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the kingdoms of the uh, kingdoms for I'm sorry. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth, those who rule over the earth. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, doesn't take a lot of wrath. <laughs> Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So he's giving them an opportunity here. Listen up, you judges of the earth. Kiss the sun. Bow down to him. Serve him. So in this darkness that seems to be covering creation at this point in time where Jesus comes back, the people see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He is shining in his brightness. He's the light that they can see. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, we've, you know, we're reading some of these passages we've read uh, before and perhaps often. He says in verse 7 of Second Thessalonians 2, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. This is Paul's day. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. There's a restraining of the evil in the earth. And we believe that to be the Holy Spirit in the church. And it says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. 
when he comes, his brightness is going to destroy these and they're going to be taken, cast into the lake of fire. It's going to be an insufferable light for the wicked. They won't be able to withstand it. It's a destructive power in this light. So he talks about the stars of heaven falling, the powers of the heavens being shaken. Uh, the powers in the heavens themselves will be shaken. This is certainly not God's power, which is unassailable, but the powers and principalities in the heavenly places that do battle against the Lord, they will be shaken and overthrown. We're in the realm of apocalyptic language here. We understand it straightforwardly, but we realize that things may be manifested differently than we might think. There's much symbolism, which is open to interpretation. I heard Barry Stagner recently, uh, this is not a direct quote, but he, he basically said, the correct interpretation of prophecy is settled in its fulfillment. So we'll read things, we, we'll think, well, you know, this is the way it's going to come about, but uh, we're going to know, just as in you know past prophecies, we know <laughs> because they've happened, they've been fulfilled. And so uh, some of this language, you know, we don't know, is it? What it's exactly speaking, you know, is it a literal kind of thing? Is it something that else that the Lord's speaking about? In Revelation chapter 6 and verse 12, we find again similar language to this. Now, verse 12, he says, I looked when he opened the sixth seal. So this is at the beginning of the, uh, the that, uh, period of judgments. Uh, been through five and here's the sixth seal. Behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth. Here they fall, and they're actually some of those stars, and these could be um, meteors, asteroid-type things. I don't think all the stars are going to fall to the earth. As a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. So just, you know, fig tree. The figs, once figs get ripe, they fall off pretty easy. And the Lord speaks through one of the prophets and says when the enemy comes into the land, the, the figs are going to drop off the trees and they'll just go right into their mouth, you know, and they'll eat them up. So, so these fig trees uh, drop like the stars drop like these fig, fig leaves, or figs. And then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? So this is the beginning of the wrath of God being poured out upon the earth. Uh, this is not the greatest earthquake. The greatest earthquake we find in Revelation 16 around the time of this battle of Armageddon again. In verse 17 it says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. So this is the seventh bowl judgment. And a loud voice came out of the temple in heaven from the throne saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. This is right before the coming of the Lord. This great earthquake takes place. It's like, I don't know, I've been in some small earthquakes. It can be pretty scary. 
There have been many massive earthquakes, you know, in different places. This is going to be the worst earthquake. It apparently will be worldwide. He says, now the great city was divided into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. The great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And then every island fled away and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men. Each hailstone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. So after this great earthquake, shaken up all of creation, these hailstones about the weight of a talent, that's anywhere from 70 to 100 pound hailstone. A little bit bigger, you know. Even Paul's car wouldn't be able to withstand one of those, you know. So this kind of cosmic calamity is described in many Old Testament passages, such as Isaiah 13, 9-11, where he says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes. And that's what we're talking about here is the day of the Lord. Cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light, the sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. Sounds like the same time period. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. In Joel chapter 2, verses 30 and 31, he says, I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. It's a great and awesome day. That's the day of the Lord that is coming. Uh, Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. He says, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. Now he's looking to the, the near future, but this language he's using is really about the end times. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. It's not going to be a good day for the world. In Amos chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, Amos says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. All these people were saying, oh, when the day of the Lord comes, because they're looking at the kingdom. You know, when the day of the Lord comes, he, the Messiah is going to come, he's going to reign. Well, that's all true. But the day of the Lord before that point in time when Jesus returns is uh, not something to look forward to. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, for what good is the day of the Lord to you? <laughs> because they were not serving the Lord. They were not following the Lord. It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Amos says, is it not very dark with no brightness in it? It's not a day to look forward to or anticipate. What a contrast this is with the coming of the Lord for his church. We cry, come quickly, Jesus. 
It's referred to as the blessed hope. But the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord to the earth, is not a day to anticipate. I mean, we know the outcome. We're going to be preserved from that time, and we're going to see the kingdom coming. So uh, the heavens will rejoice in that day, but to the people on the earth, it's not a day to look forward to. Day of darkness and some of the things we've read about. So he talks about these stars falling. Is Jesus speaking of physical stars or the angels in the heavenly realms or perhaps both? Certainly the physical universe will be shaken as the Lord prepares to refresh the heavens and the earth for the millennium. In Acts chapter 3, Peter uh, preaching after the healing of the lame man, he says in verse 19, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So uh, certainly the, the physical universe is going to be shaken as the Lord prepares for this time. But the new heaven and the new earth will not be until after the millennial kingdom. We don't see that until Revelation 21, uh, verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven. The first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea, he says. Now, angels are referred to as stars in some uh, biblical passages. Revelation chapter 1 uh, verses 19 and 20, Jesus speaking, he says to John, write the things which you've seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. That's actually the Lord's outline of the book of Revelation. It's, you know, A, what John's seeing, B, the things which are, which are those churches that he's uh, speaking to, and then C, the things which will take place after these things is the literal so he, then he says, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. So there's a mystery. Jesus is revealing it. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw, saw are the seven churches. So these seven stars, he says, are the angels of the seven churches. Well, the word angel in uh, Old and New Testament is basically a messenger. They're servants of the Lord. And they bring messages from the Lord uh, to the earth. And some people interpret this. They say, well, the, the messenger of the seven churches, that would be the pastor of those churches. You know, I think he's speaking of uh, angels, a created class, you know, and not those particular pastors. Uh, because angels are spoken of as stars. Revelation chapter 12, verses 3 and 4 uh, we see in this chapter this picture of something that's taking place in heaven. And he says in verse 3, Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. So he's, he's ruling. He's got crowns. This dragon. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Well, a third of the stars haven't been thrown to the earth uh, physically. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. So the fall of the dragon, taking with his tail and dragging with him a third of the stars of heaven, a third of the angels that uh, have fallen. And then in Job 38, verses 4 through 7, 
Um, God questioning Job says in verse 4, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? He says, To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? Um, you know, this, these are hard questions to answer. <laughs> uh, this is where Ezekiel would say, Oh Lord, you know. <laughs> In verse 7, then he says, When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Well, again, some would interpret this as the actual stars. You know, they, you know, they have uh, well, they call those. You know, they they make noises. Stars make noises, right? They send out music and messages. Uh, you know, not messages in English, but and some would say, well, these are those stars. But when the foundation of the earth was laid, there were no stars, physical stars in the heavens. They weren't created until day four. So the foundation of the earth was laid. All the sons of God, the sons of God references in the Old Testament are to the angels of God, except, well, that's New Testament. Adam is called the son of God, created by God. So these morning stars singing together, these are angels that God had created previously. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 7, we're told, uh, of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. This is a quote of uh, Psalm 104.4. So uh, his messengers, his, his bringing of the message, he created them in this way. So the powers in the heavens will be shaken. This could be speaking purely of the physical universe, but there are powers in the heavens that oppose the Lord, and they will be shaken and fall at some point. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, we read, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. These principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness, spiritual hosts of wickedness. These are different uh, hierarchies or levels of evil beings that are fighting in heavenly places, and we wrestle against those. We don't say we don't have human enemies. No, the humans aren't our enemies. It's the powers behind those human beings, these principalities and powers. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, he says, For by him, Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. All these Things were created when Jesus created the world, but some of them fell. Some of them did not fall. Some of them were, were loyal to God. And so we have these powers, these dark powers. Colossians 2.15, speaking of the work of Jesus uh, on the cross, he says, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Jesus has won the victory over these powers but they have not yet been vanquished. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, Paul writes and says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, nothing in creation shall be able to separate us 
from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. These powers are powerless if they should try to separate us from the love of Jesus. And then Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, Paul speaking of something that God's going to make his wisdom known by. He says in verse 8, To me who am the least, less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. So this mystery fellowship to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church, that's us, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the the church, there's a mystery concerning the church and God is showing his manifold wisdom to others in creation, principalities and powers, in whom, Jesus, we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. And then in Revelation Revelation chapter 12, if we go back there to verse 7, uh, it speaks of this uh, time, this battle, the, the fight that takes place. And it says in verse 7, War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. So this is that um, conflict between the unfallen and the fallen. And it says, but they did not prevail, that is, the dragon and his angels, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, he's identified for us, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him, that is the saints, by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, woe, to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. This man of lawlessness that Jesus is going to destroy with the brightness of his coming has been, at this point, possessed by the devil. And so we're in that time period that lasts three and a half years again. And after the end of that tribulation, Jesus comes in great power and glory. In Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 25, speaking of this shaking of the heavens, in verse 25, the writer says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. This is Haggai 2.6. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably, 
with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. This shaking of the heavens that are going to take place. We're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So, as Jesus comes at his coming, all his enemies will be made his footstool. Uh, Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And Jesus applied this uh, prophecy to himself. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he quotes this and says, You have put all things in subjection under his feet. This is from Psalm 8, but it's the same uh, event. It says, For in that he, ha- he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. We're awaiting that time when all his enemies will be made his footstool. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. On verse 26, it says, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. This is a reference back to a passage in Daniel chapter 7. Seven through fourteen. We'll get a little bit of the context here. Daniel says, After this, verse seven, I saw that in the night visions, and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible. This is this vision he had of four different beasts. Exceedingly strong, it had huge iron teeth, it was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. We're talking about this same time frame, and this beast uh, is presented as the Roman Empire, and then it becomes weaker, and but it's still on display in the last days, the, uh, the legs of iron and clay and the feet, you know, iron mixed with clay. He has ten horns. He says, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Man of lawlessness again. And then he says, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame and its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. That's a million, thousand thousands. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. That's a hundred million. And the court was seated and the books were open. He says, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. And he talked about casting the, the beast and false prophet into the lake of fire. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And so this is that reference coming with the clouds of heaven. 
And then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. And so we see this uh, kingdom coming. Um, This was accepted as a messianic prophecy by all the Jews, even by the the, uh, council, the Sanhedrin. They accepted this as speaking of the Messiah. They just wanted to know if Jesus was claiming to be this guy because they didn't think he was. They didn't want him to be. And so uh, this is what he was on trial about, basically. This Son of Man is the one that Jesus of Nazareth claimed to be. When he's on trial before the Sanhedrin in Matthew 26, in verse 59, it says, Now the chief priests, the elders, all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward. So they brought all these witnesses in, but none of them presented anything they could use. And then these two come in and and they said, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. He's misquoted. You know, he said, he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. You, You do the destruction, I'll do the raising up. And John explains to us he was speaking about the temple of his body when he was saying that. The high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? And they still have no case. This is not something you can condemn somebody to death for by making a statement they would consider nonsensical at this time. So the high priest is getting a little frustrated and he's like, Why aren't you saying anything? You know, you're not answering these charges. Uh, But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So it comes down to this. He puts him under oath, and the high priest was able to do this. He could uh, pronounce that somebody's under oath, and they had to tell, uh, answer the question. And if Jesus is silent, if he remains silent, then it's basically uh, denial that he is the Messiah, Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says to him, it is as you said. And then he adds a little bit, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So he refers back to this Daniel 7 uh, scripture. And he says, that's what you're going to see. And that's going to be me that's sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest, you know, of course, should say, I repent. (laughs) But the high priest tears his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you've heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, He's deserving of death. So he was sworn to tell the truth under oath. He left no doubt about his claims. He's the one who will be coming with the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. In Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, we see the fulfillment of this. He says, Now I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. 
And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. We see these people in fine linen, white and clean, coming with him. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, as we read in Psalm 2. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so uh, we see him coming to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, not with cruelty, but righteousness and justice being enforced. Uh, In Matthew's version of this passage we're looking at this morning, in the Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31, it says, it's very similar, he says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. This is again Jesus speaking. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, Mark, uh, Jesus says great power and glory and here it's power and great glory. So I think they're both great. And he will send his angels with a great sound of the trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And that's what we see in verse 27 of Mark 13, sending his angels, gathering together his elect from the four winds from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. This is not the rapture of the church. That occurred around seven years earlier, before the beginning of the tribulation. This is at the end of the tribulation. At the rapture, Jesus does not send his angels to gather his bride. He comes personally to take her to his father's house for a wedding feast, a celebration. In John 14, verses 1 through 3, Jesus speaking to his apostles says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there you may be also. This is the promise. I'm coming back to get you and bring you, receive you to myself. Um, Vernon McGee says, it's not the rapture of the church. Christ will not send angels to gather out his own, but they will be caught up to meet him in the air. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 18, which we read often. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. They were worried about their brothers and sisters that had passed away. And did they miss the thing? You know, are they are they gone? He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. That is when he returns, second coming, he's going to bring with him those who have died. For this we say to you and those who live. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Anybody who's alive at that time. Uh, And this coming of the Lord here is the rapture of the church. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, not, not angels, with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is also referred to in 1 Corinthians 15, 
In verse 50, Paul says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. There's this change of the body immediately for those who remain alive in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and the, the dead are raised in glorified bodies. And so uh, that's the rapture of the church. Rather, uh, this section that we're reading is describing events which will take place after the tribulation, as we're told here, when Christ will return to the earth in glory and judgment. He's, when he comes for the church in the rapture, he's not returning to the earth. He's coming in the air, catching his up from the earth. There are uh, numerous distinctions between the rapture and the second coming. And uh, out on our website, calvarychapelevv.com, or .org, evv.org, um, in the blog section, there's a chart that gives some of these differences along with uh, scripture references, but I'm just going to give some of them, and uh, we'll probably look at them again at some point in time as well, along with the references. But here are the differences between the rapture and the second coming. Uh, in the rapture, Jesus comes in the air. In the second coming, he returns to the earth. Um, in a sense, you know, we dis we make the distinguishment between the rapture and the second coming, which we should, but this is all surrounding the second coming. We could say the second coming begins with the rapture of the church, uh, just as his first coming began with his birth and ended with his ascension. You know, that was the first coming, but it included a lot of uh, different events in there. And so uh, Jesus comes in the air at the rapture. He returns to the earth at the second coming. Uh, he comes for the saints or the bride at the rapture. He comes with the saints and the bride uh, at the second coming. At the rapture, there's a resurrection. Uh, the dead in Christ are raised. New bodies, the, those who are alive, are changed immediately into bodies just like the ones Jesus has. Second coming, there is no talk about a resurrection until later on. The rapture, we're told to be eagerly waiting and watching for him. For the second coming, we'd have to say it can't be today. He can't come today because there are things that must take place. Some of the things we read here in Mark 13, they have to happen before the second coming can take place. But there's nothing that has to happen before the rapture takes place. And that's why we're to be eagerly anticipating. We're not eagerly anticipating the tribulation period. We're eagerly anticipating the rapture of the church. And in order to be eagerly anticipating, it's got to be something that can happen. <laughs> you know, it can't be not today. It has a The rapture has a purifying effect on the church and the lives of the saints. Uh, the second coming, it can't be today. So I don't have to be worried about it for, you know, till the end. And I need to clean up my act. Uh, the rapture, the world conditions, the world is asleep. It gives an indication that much, if not all, the church will be asleep. At the second coming, the world is literally on the eve of destruction. 
I mean, you, you read those things through the uh, seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowl judgments. The world is not going to be asleep, whatever else they might be. The rapture is a mystery. The second coming is revealed in places in both the Old Testament, as we saw, as well as in the New Testament. Uh, the, the mystery is only revealed in the New Testament of the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is a blessed hope. The second coming is the end of God's wrath having been expended. There's, you know, for those who survive, it's, there's not much left for there to be a blessed hope. The rapture is intended to deliver the church from the wrath of God because uh, this period of time is for Israel, as we have talked about with those 70 weeks in Daniel 9. This is the last week, the last seven. And God has determined these times for his people, Israel, he tells Daniel, for that holy city and their people. And so he comes first to deliver the church before his wrath begins to be poured out on the world. And at the second coming, he comes to deliver Israel uh, from annihilation. And he will also rescue those other saints that have come to believe during that period of time if they're still alive. The rapture ends the church age. That's the end of the church age. There's no... No one is added to the church after that time. It doesn't mean nobody can be saved, but the church is a distinct group. It began on the day of Pentecost, and it ends with the rapture of the church. And then the second coming of Jesus begins the millennium. And so the promises God has made to Israel, which he said he would keep for the sake of the fathers, are going to be carried out. And that begins at the second coming. There's a period of time of judgment. And uh, certainly the earth will experience some renewal because people will live long ages again during that period of time and so forth. But there will still be death. So it's not yet the new heavens and the new earth. The millennial period, uh, is the conditions are restored much better than uh, what we experience now. Um, but it's not the new heavens and new earth yet. There will be mortals inhabiting that kingdom as well as uh, we would expect to be there. Um, ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus. But God has made promises. He's got promises to keep. Is that Richard? No, not. Who's that guy that was out in, you know, in the sled and saying, I've got miles to go before I sleep? And i got promises to keep. Pardon? Yeah, Robert Frost. Uh, God has promises to keep. And he always keeps his promises. You know, he never has failed. And keeping a promise. So Jesus, at the end of this tribulation period, he will gather all believers who have come to him during the tribulation and survived, but primarily this is speaking of Israelites. His elect or his chosen people who will be gathered into the promised land for the institution of the millennial kingdom. A remnant has been preserved of the Jewish people and they will enter the kingdom. In Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 5, um, Moses has set before them the blessings, and he set before them the curses, the blessings if they keep the covenant, the cursings if they don't keep the covenant. And of course, he knew beforehand that they were going to be uh, judged and exiled from the land. 
in Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, he says, Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. And you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart, with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed. You shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. So this is the promise that is given to them. God has said also that they will never again be uprooted from the land that he has given them. In Amos chapter 9. In verse 11 he says, On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David. Excuse me, which has fallen down, and I'll repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Israel's going to possess all these Gentiles who have come to him. Says the Lord who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, the mountains shall drip with sweet wine. And all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. And I will plant them in their land. And no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. So this comes to that, uh, speaks to that kingdom that he has promised the everlasting kingdom that begins with the millennial period and goes on into the new heavens and the new earth, kingdom that shall never fail.